Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you, as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1920-6, where today we'll be focusing on the biggest example of what happens when Karens get a voting majority, Prohibition. Today's singers tried to make light of a bad situation through comedy and musical protest, but they probably had a dry throat when they did it. Today we're going to talk about a few artists that took to the stage to speak out against the evils and hypocrisy of prohibition. If you're not familiar, or if you're listening from another country outside of the U.S., from the year 1920 until 1933, alcohol was completely, federally banned in the land of the free. It was a tough loss for plenty of people who had to watch barrels of beer get poured down the drain, but groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union and Protestant Reformers had been fighting for decades and finally won out against drinking Catholics and Germans who were able to be vilified and silenced at the outset of World War I. One of the main tactics that the prohibitionists used was pressure politics, where mass media is weaponized to generate public support for an issue. So of all the ills you can blame on them, from the morality police to organized crime, one of their worst offenses is making mass media so political. In response, the artists we're talking about today brought music to the fight for those of us who enjoy a brew, so let's lift our beer and thanks to the names of Billy Murray, Burt Williams, and Nora Bays. You didn't think I'd have a podcast that focuses on authenticity and then not have a beer while talking about the evils of prohibition, did you? If you did, you were wrong, and today's podcast pairs very well with the Paul Lanner Oktoberfest Märzen. Let's start by talking about Billy Murray, who was the son of Irish immigrants born in Philadelphia in 1877. When he was five years old, his parents moved their family to Denver, Colorado, and from then on, he would earn himself the nickname of the Denver Nightingale. He became one of the most popular singers of the acoustic era, but would later have trouble when the electric microphone came into more mainstream use in the mid-1920s. He had essentially been yelling into the gramophone and was much too harsh for the more sensitive recording equipment of the electric era. Most of the time, Murray was recording the popular songs of the day, and that's what he does in today's I'll See You in CUBA. The song was recorded by many artists, so take a close listen to the lyrics today to see how the artists of the day were pining for a drink. Also interesting in today's music is Murray's profiteering blues, which lay out his troubles and ask if people remember when prices were low and free lunches came with beers. So even back then, people were complaining about money. Burt Williams was born in the Bahamas in 1874 and was one of the most popular comedians of his time. His family moved to Florida when he was 19 and Williams was quick to get into show business. By 19, he was performing in menstrual shows in blackface. It's important to note here that Williams was black himself, so that he performed in blackface is a strange example of how black people were caricatured in entertainment even to the point where that to be a recognizable character type, Williams did the same kind of burnt cork makeup as other blackface performers of his time. In Williams' tracks today, you'll hear some of his character work as well as some of his songs that tell a story rather than behave in traditional verse. Last but not least, we have Nora Bays, who sings the Prohibition Blues. Bays was born in Illinois in 1880 
and by the time she was 18, she was performing on Chicago's vaudeville circuit. We won't hear it today, but Bays made the song Over There famous when she was first to record and release it in 1917. That song would go on to inspire many in World War I to fight a little bit harder, and those at home to buy war bonds. There's a lyric in Prohibition Blues that I'm curious about if anyone has any information on it. In the opening, as Bays is asking the subject of the song What's Wrong With Him, she says, What ails you brown, man? And I'd like to know if that's a reference to a brown-skinned person, or if it's a phrase I'm unfamiliar with, like something really bad ails you brown. I haven't been able to find anything concrete, so I'd love to hear if you know more about it. But let's get to the music already. If you're not already listening to this part of the podcast through the Spotify playlist, it's highly recommended that you look the show up on Spotify by searching for Cunningham's Law Review. On our Spotify page, you'll find a playlist that features this, the side A of the podcast, each of the songs we'll be listening to for today, and side B of the podcast where we recap the songs we've heard and review each of them on their own. Today's playlist is posted on Spotify under the title Cunningham's Law Review 1920-6. You can also find the link to the playlist on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail. That's all for Side A of episode 1920-6. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-6. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Today's musicians fought against one of the major issues of their day in Prohibition using their art, but also made time to make fun of a man acting tough to his wife and a preacher who was shaking down his parishioners with a sermon on generosity. Starting with the issue at heart, Billy Murray reminds us that within sailing distance, there's a little island waiting to satisfy your libationary needs, and it's called Cuba. The song starts off a bit strangely and almost sounds like a Christmas carol with its descending opening and subdued notes, but quickly opens up into a song that highlights all the reasons why Cuba is a great place to go. In terms of authenticity, Murray was just as likely as anyone to be trying to figure out an alternative to Prohibition, and the song earns a three. For innovation, there's just not much to be said. Murray didn't write the song and it was covered by many other artists in about the same way, so it earns a three for innovation as well. While the song is catchy, it's not anything outstanding and earns a third three for catchiness. The wordplay is excellent with some inventive rhyming, not to mention the chorus on its face is clever wordplay, but Murray doesn't do anything to elevate it and earns another three for mastery. To complete the categories with a total of 16 is a four for artistic statement, since while the statement against prohibition is clear and fleshed out in fun ways like telling people not to settle for drinking in speakeasy basements, It doesn't ask much of the listener in terms of imagination, instead being on the nose with its message and foregoing imagery for the most part. On the other hand, Murray's He Went In Like a Lion and Came Out Like a Lamb was a pleasant surprise for me since I wasn't expecting much from it at all. 
It also finished with a score of 16 with threes across the board, but a four for innovation since this was a real turning around of gender norms that I didn't expect from the 20s. If you listen closely to the lyrics, the song starts out with a man telling his friend that it's time for him to be going home so that he doesn't get in trouble with his wife. The friend responds, oh, I'll show you how it's done, and walks into his house blustering, only to be told to get the hell out and have food thrown on him by his wife, who's having none of his nonsense. The song also featured some sound effects to add to the innovation as well, and while they weren't overly wonderful or anything, it added a bit to the comedic effect the song clearly wanted to portray. Interesting as well was the reference to the Rudyard Kipling poem Gunga Din, which was flipped around in this instance. In the poem, the speaker is telling Gunga Din, who has just died to serve him water, that he's a better man than the speaker will ever be, and in this song, the wife tells her husband that she's better than him, but still calls him Gunga Din since he's going to be dying next. Another topical surprise for me, especially since when we think of the 20s we think Glitz, Glamour, and Gatsby, was profiteering blues, which talked about how profiteers were making everything so expensive that no one could afford anything and that all the prices were going up. A bit of research showed me that the rate of inflation was actually a staggering 15.6% that year, preceded by rates of 17, 18, and 14% in the years prior, so that was a huge problem. Those rates mean that an item you could buy in 1916 for $10 would have almost doubled in price by 1920, costing 1883. That's insane, and an issue that would cause huge problems if it happened today in 2020, because you know your salary is not going to double in four years. Unless, of course, your main source of income is from a podcast, because I'm not sure those make any money, and I could double that easily. Profiteering Blues does give a lot of references to how normal people were being impacted in terms of increased food and clothing costs, but in a funny way that would make the issue palatable rather than dreary. Unifying the song in a fun way are the ending portions where Murray rephrases the song into well-known hits, including You'd Be Surprised, which we reviewed in our Eddie Cantor episode during 1920-4. Also included are some earlier songs that we haven't reviewed in Nora Bay's Over There and John McCormick's When You and I Were Young Maggie. I'll add those songs after Side B so that you can hear them since they're directly referenced. Over There is the song that made Nora Bay's a household name and was recorded in 1917 to refer to the men fighting over there in World War I. For a total score of 16, Murray's Profiteering Blues earns threes overall, but four in artistic statement. Moving on to Burt Williams, it's a good time for us to talk about his legacy, because while we'll be reviewing a few more of his songs in our 1921 and 22 episodes, his career would be entered prematurely by his death in 22. Let's start by saying that W.C. Field said that Burt Williams was the funniest man that he ever saw. And we already talked about how both he and Eddie Cantor were working together during Zigfield's Follies in New York, but his work was more important than that, and he's not well remembered. Burt Williams was one of the first popular, and definitely the most highly paid, black comedians in American history up to this point. Led on by other pioneers in black entertainment like Billy Kersans, who also had to work within the system of menstrual shows in order to trailblaze their way into entertainment at all, by 1912, Burt Williams was being paid almost $1.5 million a year in today's dollars. Along with Nora Bays and Al Jolson, Williams was one of the three highest paid entertainers in 1920. Further pioneering, his work on stage with white women, which was unique at the time, was a testament to the magnitude of his talent and popular draw. But W.C. Fields also said in the same breath that Williams was one of the saddest men he ever knew as well as the funniest. While a popular performer, Williams was often performing as a blackface caricature of his own race. 
In Dahomey, which in 1902 became the first Broadway play to be written and performed by an all-black cast, Williams performed in blackface to show that his character was uneducated and expected to behave foolishly. Despite his talent and charm, it's easy to imagine why always being the heel in a room full of stars could be draining, especially when he could get substandard parts at his work in Ziegfeld's Follies despite his talent. However, I do love a good story about malicious compliance, and Williams was definitely up to the task when racists showed themselves. At the Astor Hotel in New York, Williams ordered a drink, and the bartender said he'd serve him, but only if he paid $50 a drink. Well, Williams was extraordinarily well paid for the time, and so he whipped out a roll of hundreds and bought rounds for the whole room just to show that he could and shut that jabroni up. Williams was quoted as saying, when ultimate changes come, I wonder if the new human beings will believe such persons as I am writing you about actually lived. Which is a poignant reminder to us today to remember that these things did happen so that we're not doomed to repeat similar mistakes. Upon his death in 1922 from pneumonia at the age of only 47, Williams' funeral services were attended by almost 10,000 people. Booker T. Washington, celebrated black leader and equal rights fighter, said of Burt Williams, he has done more for our race than I have. He has smiled his way into people's hearts. I have been obliged to fight my way, showing us one more way that art can change the world. For Williams' first song today, he starts off strong with a 16. The Moonshines on the Moonshine features some excellent imagery of the disrepair of a distillery and also shows how people were cheering on the moonshiners running illicit distillation in the hills out of town. The disappointment and frustration in William's voice when he says that even water's getting weaker, and definitely when he warned that nobody should sneeze while working up in the hills, were both genuinely funny. While the rest of the song is average and meant to be simple, the artistic statement is a solid four with threes in the remaining categories. One of the things that Williams is most historically known for is his work for racial equality, but he definitely fell victim to the casual stereotyping of Irish people as heavy drinkers in this song when he referred to his wife's family as, quote, mix who always finish everything they start, referring to bottles of whiskey, and noting that his cook's famous Irish stew used an entire bottle of the stuff. These are inauthentic for sure, especially as Williams' family wasn't Irish, so he would have been going out of his way to include this verse. However, the artistic statement is still strong in enumerating all the ways that he loses his bottles through bribes and also for uses as medicines and anesthetic, and there's a four there. Catchiness is a two, but that's not a knock against the song, more than a recognition of the structure here. Like 99 bottles of beer on the wall, it just doesn't lend itself to catchiness. Innovation and mastery are threes, completing the categories for a score of 14 out of 25 points. One of the two songs that Williams did through the character of Elder Eatmore, The Sermon on Generosity, earns a 13 today. The spoken word is the biggest deduction through catchiness and earns a 1, but authenticity and innovation earn 3s as anyone who's ever been to church has seen the plate come around and felt every eye checking to see what they cough up for the church. In juxtaposing the request for charity against the preacher telling his parishioners that he'll see the generous ones in heaven, Williams smartly calls out the difference between charity and coercion. We've heard previously other successful recordings of spoken word, so this one being so hard to understand does lend credence to the idea that it was not well recorded, leaving a two for mastery. But the song does earn a four for artistic statement here by talking about the church. This would have been risky at this time, and it was cleverly done through satire here rather than direct criticism. 
If you'd like an easier to understand version following side B, I'll add Louis Armstrong's cover from 1938. And finally, we have Nora Bay's Prohibition Blues. I was surprised to find out that Nora Bay's was so well paid, considering that this song scored a 13 of 25 points. In authenticity, I'm always liable to believe that people will miss alcohol, but the song doesn't really build convincingly that alcohol is a good best friend to have and earns a 3. For innovation, there aren't really a lot of positives, and the song lacks rhythm generally, almost as if it's taken a step back during the jazz age and earns a 2. Catchiness suffers similarly with a 2 for the same reasons. Mastery and artistic statements suffer here from a case of missed opportunity, I think. While we all know that alcohol isn't a great best friend in general, it could have been given more personality within the song's structures through more increased characterization. An example would be talking about all the good times you've had with alcohol or how you never feel alone at a party since you always had a flask. But as it stands, it's just average and earns threes for a total score of 13. Today's reviews of these artists sum up a lot of issues that people were having with Prohibition going into effect and making them little time capsules from 1920. Opening them a hundred years later is revealing, both in terms of how supportive people were of moonshiners, which led to organized crime running rampant in the 20s and 30s, talking about how so many people would be missing alcohol. How did they lose on this issue then? For the year, Nora Bay's average is a 13, Burt Williams ends at 14.3, and Billy Murray has the best year of the three, averaging 16. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, or reach out through an Anchor voicemail. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast and playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. We'll be back tomorrow with songs from Paul Whiteman and Art Hickman, two band leaders who were leading the way when it came to legitimizing jazz and making big bands a big trend. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme is a difficult subject by the insider, and nobody else works here. <laughs>